I do um, recognize we're in an electronic age, but I so appreciate and want to encourage you to use actual Bibles as we turn to Scripture, to actually look at the page and to bring your own Bible as well as a reminder. This morning our, our sermon is from Psalm 48. It's the 16th sermon in a series called The Psalms of My Life. And this psalm talks about a city, which reminded me that every year around this time, various research agencies put out a list of the best cities to live in. Factors that are considered are things like access to hiking or outdoor recreation, breweries, of course, restaurants, cost of housing, and obviously whether there's good jobs in the region, factor in. According to the U.S. News and World Report, the top list for 2022 and 2023, the top city, is Huntsville, Alabama, followed by Colorado Springs, which was dethroned by Huntsville, and Green Bay, Wisconsin, Glassboro comes in at four. We're doing pretty good. You know, there are advantages of living in one place, one part of the country over another. Maybe you think in terms of weather, maybe you think in terms of the tech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, construction, the trades, whatever it may be. Proximity to scenery, proximity to attractions. But when you dig down beneath the, the surface of those sorts of factors, you know, no city is perfect, and every city has a slum, a ghetto, the quote-unquote other side of the tracks. None has all the amenities. Every city has its problems. I was talking with Kevin and Nicole, who just came home from spending time abroad, and during their, during their time away, they got to visit a few cities in Japan. Now, Japanese cities are famous for being clean and safe, and the food is amazing, and the people are kind and welcoming. Yet true as this is, in Japanese society, there are problems. And when you dig beneath the surface of Japan's world-class cities, it isn't always as it seems. And this is true of all the major cities in the world. Crime, oppression, inequality, theft, lack of opportunity on an external level. And that's not to mention the problems that come from the human heart, things like greed, hypocrisy, hubris. Brokenness and sin is the great challenge of all of our cities, whether rural, suburban, or urban, anywhere you go. But there is one perfect city. Now this city is modeled after the ancient city of Jerusalem. And it's called in scripture various names, the city of God. It's called Mount Zion or simply Zion. And in this perfect city, which is the title of my sermon, the perfect city, Almighty God through his son Jesus Christ rules as the perfect king, which is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 45. In this perfect city, nothing can ultimately hurt, harm, or destroy because of its perfect nature, though you will experience night seasons of fear, 
senses of abandonment and trouble. As we learn in Psalm 46, God is with her when the morning dawns. But where is this perfect city? Who lives there? And what are your responsibilities as residents? These are the questions I want to try to answer in this morning's message from Psalm 48. Let's begin then by reading God's holy word and asking his blessing on our hearing, understanding, and believing what it has to say to us. The word of God, Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them their anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shatter the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The word of the Lord, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the perfect city, which is poetically and very vividly described for us here. But we have some questions about the city. And so we pray that you will help us know more about it, the city, where it is, and who lives there, and what are the responsibilities of its citizens. So now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts and reflections on each one of our heart be pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Question number one, where is the perfect city? Take a look at our text. Verses 1 and 2 say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Now this city I mentioned in my introduction is described in terms that resemble ancient Jerusalem. And in particular, the temple within ancient Jerusalem. But the description of this ancient city far exceeds anything that Jerusalem ever attained to. Broadly speaking, we're looking and talking about Jerusalem in antiquity. It became the capital city in Israel, the place where God ultimately directed 
David to locate the Ark of the Covenant in a tabernacle. Now, David wouldn't build the temple. His son Solomon would build it. At which point, the Ark of the Covenant, dwelling place of God amongst his people on the mercy seat, that hilasterion, the Ark, where the cherubim's wings overshadow its lid. That Ark was placed within the Holy of Holies, the center point of the temple. But it's also described as being in the far north, which Jerusalem is not in Israel. It's hardly in the north. Derek Kidner suggests that this is a turn of phrase which has traditionally described the royal seat of God in the far north. More or less, we're being told with this phrase, the far north, that though this city resembles Jerusalem in some ways, it bursts out of the bounds of anything that Jerusalem could have ever lived up to. It's heaven. So we're to understand, and this is an important skill in reading Scripture, that when we see a king and the virtues of a king in the Bible, we're to pay attention to the fact that no human king, in Psalm 45, for instance, ever lived up to those qualities. Likewise, when we see about Jerusalem, the city of God in the Bible, we're not to automatically infer that this is simply talking about historic Jerusalem, which will come back in some form, shape, or fashion in the future. Oh no, this is talking about, figuratively, a city greater than Jerusalem ever was, the city of God, heaven itself. So Jerusalem is the historical starting place. It's the model for the city of God, the perfect city. The perfect city is stronger. It's true that for a while, Jerusalem appeared to enjoy a certain kind of special protection from Almighty God. Vast armies would surround the city, greatly outnumbering any warriors that Israel could bring to bear upon the battle. But by luck, happenstance, circumstance, the intervention of God, often in Scripture we see thousands, tens of thousands of warriors running for their lives for no apparent reason away from Jerusalem. I love reading First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Samuel, which focuses specifically on David. I love reading about some of these battles. It's amazing. But you know, ultimately, due to her idolatry, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple. In three successive phases, the king of Babylon sacked the city, burned the temple, and carted off her inhabitants into exile. such that by the time of Jesus, Jerusalem was only a minor city in a Roman province called Palestine. And its residents imagined that they were free, but in reality they were really just pawns of the Roman emperor. Perfect city is stronger than this. It's also larger. The scope, the scale in Psalm 48 of the city, well, you could say that someone was just describing Jerusalem in a loving and an exaggerated way. You could say that. Or you could say, maybe Jerusalem was just a launch pad to describe a city that knows no bounds. Look at verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. 
somehow this city is, a, is global in extent. It's so vast, so expansive, that it can claim residents all around the world, not just pilgrimages to the city, but somehow the city itself has overtaken the entire planet. This is a global city in a literal sense. And the perfect city is also more famous. While this city in David and Solomon's time, Jerusalem, was for a short while renowned, and the queen of Sheba comes and sits in Solomon's court, and she marvels at all of the gold and the ivory and his attendants and the wisdom which drops from his mouth. She's amazed. But Jerusalem never lived up to what is said about it here, the joy of the whole earth. There are people in the time of, of Jerusalem, of antiquity, that hadn't even heard of Jerusalem. These are, these are unbelievably big descriptions of the city. So Jerusalem is just a prototype. Polly's dad likes to do woodworking, and uh, he made a, um, uh, a necklace, uh, a, piece, a piece of, I guess, I don't know, not furniture, but a little thing where you hang necklaces and earrings on them. I'm clearly an expert in women's jewelry. And he, he made it for his wife, Polly's stepmom, but Polly got the prototype. He's, he's that exact, like he made an exact prototype before he went and bought the expensive wood, and so we got, we got the prototype. Jerusalem is a prototype, is what I'm saying, to the perfect city. It's not the real thing. It's not the finished product. We're told in the book of Revelation that the real thing, the heavenly city, has streets of gold. Jerusalem never did that. I mean, Jerusalem looked like it had streets of gold during Solomon's time because there was so much gold in the city. But the real thing has streets of gold. And while there's gates around the earthly Jerusalem, the real city has gates of pearl and various precious stones. That can't be said of Jerusalem. Now before I conclude this first point, I want you to notice one more thing. We're asking where the city is. While the city of Psalm 48, I think ultimately is in heaven, the perfect city, a little like the Christmas story, we celebrate heaven coming to earth. In this psalm, we see a picture, a glimpse, that heaven has come to earth. You see, by using an earthly city to describe a heavenly city, you might say the heavenly city becomes, shines down and becomes an image of itself in Jerusalem. Jerusalem then points forward to that heavenly city. But the fact that there is a real city here tells us that it's not just in heaven. In the Old Testament, being in Jerusalem, being in the temple, was really being in the presence of God. And then in the New Testament, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, Jesus Christ and his body, the church, is the earthly city of God. 
Just as with Jerusalem, so with the New Jerusalem, the Church of Christ. You can enter a church building just like you could enter Jerusalem, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're in the city of God. You can build a church but not be building the holy city. You can preach in a church but not be hearing from the great king. So we have an earthly experience of the city of God in the new covenant in the church, but not always. We'll come back to that at the end of the message. So where is the perfect city? It's in heaven and on earth. It's in the church. Who lives here is my second question. There's several clues throughout the psalm. The first clue tells us who doesn't live here, verses 4 through 7, for behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. By the way, this is the sequel to Psalm 2 here, Psalm 48, verses 4 through 7, tells us what happened when the kings of the earth assembled together in Psalm 2. They run in panic. Trembling takes hold of them. This is the sort of shaking of of someone with a seizure. It's uncontrollable tremors in your body. That's how afraid they were when they thought about, began to, and then changed their mind about sacking this city, this perfect city. By the east wind, you, that is the Lord, shattered the ships of Tarshish. The ships of Tarshish was like the U.S. Navy in the ancient day. These were the most well-known navy, and you didn't want to come up against the ships of Tarshish. And God just basically sends a little wind from the east, and they're destroyed. I think 4 through 7 actually describes, for the psalmist, the sons of Korah, it's describing God's great victory over his enemies in the past. And verse 8 is saying, I heard about that, but now I'm experiencing it in my own life. The people who live in the city, they are not the people who assemble against God. These are not the antichrists, the anti-gods, the anti-messiahs. The evil assembly is comprised of powerful people, influencers, the, uh, the, the elite, the leaders, the titans of industry, the leaders of the tech sector of Hollywood. These are people who, who are university presidents and mayors. These are people with degrees and power and money and, and, and everything that you could possibly want. And they've called a meeting And they want to live in this city. They want to take it over for themselves. This is like a modern Babel. They're going to build a tower, a monument of man. And God says, no, you can't live in my city. That's on the negative side, the people who don't live there. The people who do live there are those in verse 3 who trust God as a fortress. You know, a fortress is is a place of protection and safety. And people who have made a monument of their own ideas, of their own accomplishments, of their own money, of their, of their good looks, they don't need God as a fortress. They're plenty strong all by themselves, and you can tell by the way they, they walk. I'm, I'm something. 
But the people who live in this city have said, not unto me, not unto me, but unto thy name be glory, honor, and strength. God, you are my fortress. Little people live in this city. The meek, the powerless, the poor, the cast off, the ignored. These are the ones that take up residence in his city. Look at verse 9. The people that live in this city are people who nourish their devotional life with God by thinking about the love of God. The steadfast love, I've, I've said this before from this pulpit, when, when the Bible says steadfast love, it's referring to the Hebrew word hesed, which means God's determined determination to be faithful to his promises. Steadfast love. I will keep my promises. The people who live in this city, you want to live in this city? Your devotional life will be strengthened and nourished by meditating, reflecting on the unbreakable love of God. It's your chief joy to think and to talk about God's love for me, a poor, unworthy sinner. We have thought, we have meditated on your steadfast love, O God. And where does this meditation take place? It's in the perfect city. You could say it's in the church. The old church of the old covenant and not its replacement, but its fulfillment in the multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile church of the new, new covenant in the midst of your temple in Christ. We're thinking about the love of God and the people who who have a passport to this city, who, who take up residence in this city, are just taken with God's covenant love. And then I want to point out one other thing about the people that live in this city. Look at verses 12, um, 12 and 13. Just this picture, walking about Zion, going around her. This is a tour number her towers. This is an accountant. It's uh, somebody checking. It's an inspector. Consider well her ramparts. Hmm. That's very well done. Look at the detail in that rampart. I don't know what a rampart is, but it's, it's examined carefully. Going through her citadels. So the people that live in this city are, are experts they're, they're not just uh, outsiders. They know how the city works. They know its strengths. They know its virtues. Down to the details, they know the number of towers in the city. And they don't just know it for themselves, they know it for, <coughs> for their children. Verse 13, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. So the people who live in this city are not just rookies. They're, they're people who care about the city and have learned about the city and are passing on that information to the rising generation, both biological and relational. Children, you see, can be the, the people that, as a husband and a wife, you give, you give rise to, the new generation. But children can also be your friends who don't know anything about this city and are, 
are, are ignorant of the perfect city. Tell them about this. Know what the church is about. Know what your church is like. Know it well. And share it with others. So where is the city? On earth, Jerusalem is the prototype, but the real deal is in heaven, and we experience it in the new covenant in the church. It's like an outpost of the heavenly city of God on earth. That means that the people who live in the city are people who trust God, who know God and his love in particular. My third question, what are your responsibilities in this city? If you're a member of heavenly Zion, what does the text tell us that your job is? What is the expectation? Let's just walk through the psalm, verses 1 and 2. You praise God greatly in his church. None of this half-hearted stuff. You know Jehovah, Yahweh, the author of the covenant, the creator of the world. You know him, and you know him so well that nothing but great praise comes from your mouth about this God. You also oppose all who would destroy the church. The enemies of God, they're my enemies. The mockers of God, I will mock them. Those who, who are plotting in their meetings and in their convocations against Almighty God, you're not going to join in. You're going to get up from that table and walk out. And then you're going to pray that they will be frustrated in all of their efforts to undermine the church of Jesus Christ. And verse 8, you notice God's faithfulness. I've heard about it. This is great for children. My parents have told me about Almighty God. They've told me about His Son, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ, the church. They've, they've explained to me what a pastor is, what, a, what, a, what an elder or a deacon does. They've talked about the Lord's Day and worship. I've heard about all that. They've shared with me their testimony. I've heard my dad and how he became a Christian back in college, but now I've seen it for myself. I'm only 9 or 10 years old. I may be 15 or 20, but as I have heard, now I have seen. I've made this city myself. So you notice God's faithfulness to the church in history and in your own life. We're praying as, as part of our responsibility for the advancement of God's name in the world through the church in verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. I think this means we have a responsibility for evangelism. That means giving the story, the good news, to those who haven't heard it. Of course, evangelism includes church extension. And so we've been learning, right, Scott, about church extension, church planting. It's one of the five milestones of Mercy Hill. We desire as a church to plant other churches it means going into campus, as we've done through RUF and Brent Kilman, and now with Will Bausch, we're, we're bringing the, the love and the fame and the name of God to the campus, to the ends of the earth. Some of you are from other countries, and you bring the fame of God from your country to us. Thank you for evangelizing us. But it also means being sensitive to other communities, other people groups, cultures, even nations, where the church is struggling. Mario Fritas calls this the suffering church. It's not always obvious the persecution that the suffering church experiences. 
Sometimes persecution is soft and hard to spot. So we're seeing that God's glory advances in part by getting on our knees and taking the burdens of the suffering church as if they were our own, wherever they may be. And I mentioned this already, but how well do you know how your church works? Have you counted the ramparts and numbered the towers? Have you walked all through the church? Have you looked at our bylaws and our book of order and our confessions and our constitution? Are these things that you mock and disregard, or are they part of your wonder and amazement that God is in his church and protecting her from heresy and division and the lies of the enemy. Well, in my opening comments, I mentioned the best U.S. cities to live. I wonder, have any of you ever thought of moving out of New Jersey? Actually, that's a requirement. If you live in New Jersey, we constantly talk about our plans to move elsewhere, and then we don't do it. Very few people, though, move to New Jersey. About 15 years ago, my family and I did that. In 2007, 8, and 9, Paul, and ultimately in 09, our Polly and I and our six kids moved from southern Arizona of all places. Now, you could say we were just relocating for a job. We were in one sense, but I like to explain it to people. We're on a mission from God. So if you know the Blues Brothers, you know I just quoted the Blues Brothers right there. Now, that brought a smile to some people's faces. Particularly, I like to say that when they said, why did you move here? Thank you for that very warm New Jersey welcome. They really just wanted to know. Telling people that we were on a mission from God sometimes helped them get a picture of what I was up to. Now, this is not a time to launch into a whole sort of conversation about missiology. Certainly not with someone I just met in the checkout line at, at uh, ShopRite. But we're here to improve this city, the city of South Jersey, we could call it a city, the city of Glassboro if you want, through the influence of the perfect city, the city of God, and starting a new church. We're here to partner with and join with God in what he's doing in this city and to advance it. Advance the, the purposes of God in individual people's lives, in, in institutions, in ways of thinking, predominant cultural norms in South Jersey which aren't right, which are more like the city of men, which have flowed, flowed out of the, the gatherings of the big wigs who think they can take out the church. We're here to address those things, to name them, to speak about them, and then with the power of God and the word and the sacrament to see that they are changed or destroyed. You know, this is how the world began. In the garden, in Adam and Eve, they were given a commission. It's called the creation mandate to fill the earth and to subdue it, to take the temple garden of Eden and to populate the world with 
Zion outposts taking the chaos and the unorganized form of the world at that time and bringing it to the glory of God as they were fruitful and multiplied. And they failed at this task, but God didn't abolish the task. He simply postponed its ultimate fulfillment. Today, everything which is opposed to God's city program, sin, brokenness, and misery, will be destroyed by the advancement of God's people. And Psalm 48 gives us that hope. It reminds us that that's our job. The gospel teaches that through Christ, you individual believers are in Zion already and are called to bring Zion to every sphere of your life. This is why Jesus speaks to his disciples and calls them cities. You, my disciples, are like a city set on a hill. Let your light so shine before men, the light of this city, that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. Individual followers of Christ, you and me are called out of darkness into his marvelous light to shine the light and love of Christ as the city of God, as the new Israel, calling all nations, Jews and Gentiles, to serve the Messiah, the perfect King, and submit to his rule, extending of our reality. I think of in your schools, students, in your study programs, with your teachers, uh, men and women who have jobs in the workplace, in corporate America, or if you're in the trades, doing your work in a certain way that unmistakably points, not with a fish on your business card, but the way you do your work, your attitude towards setback, discouragement, and failure, for instance, shows others that you belong to another place and you are building that place brick by brick here and now. Mercy and justice and kindness and even wrath has its place in the life of a resident of the city of God. As we confront the systems, structures, and rulers of the world, all things and people who are assembled against the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, whose birth we sing and celebrate at this time of year. These ones are determined to build cities that not only ignore, but even fight against and blaspheme Almighty God. And God will have nothing to do with it. Psalm 48 challenges your commitment. Are you in to God's program? Are you signed up? Or are you against Him? I mentioned earlier that the perfect city, you can't travel by human, you can't get a ticket to this place. I think it's easy for churches to forget this. Christians too. Hey, we believe in Christ. We bought a church building. We're an outpost of the city of God too. See, there's the cross to prove it. Plus, we're a church plant. We're a new church. We're a real city of God. But are we doing the work of Christ? Do we as a congregation faithfully, truly represent Zion as this psalm describes it? 
Are you looking at the right hand of God and seeing His righteousness? And is that bringing you the greatest joy? That's how we know. So how do you get in? Well, you can't get in just by putting a cross on a building or around your neck. You must access the city by faith, hope, and love in God alone. It is your ultimate destiny if you're a follower of Christ, but you need to keep it there. You need to keep it in your sights. And every seven days, the Lord's Day is a gathering of the city of God where you are renewed, hopefully encouraged, the preacher is a prophet at times, but he's also like a cheerleader. Come on, we can do this. And that's my message this morning. Keep the city in your sights. Keep traveling to Zion and bringing Zion with you wherever you go. And if you haven't yet trust in Christ, if you haven't put your faith in him, you aren't neutral, but you're actually part of this, this evil assembly in verses 4 through 7 one of God's enemies. My prayer for you is that God would give you mercy, that you would not only stop fighting against him, but you'd actually embrace his plan for your life, and you'd become a real churchman or churchwoman, where you go through Zion and you number her, her palaces and her citadels, and you're personally engaged in advancing Zion in the world. In closing, I want to quote the last verse of a, of a favorite hymn, Glorious things of thee are spoken. Savior, since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's vain pleasures, all their boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. It's not a building, it's the body of Christ. It's the bride prepared for the perfect groom on a day in which that city will engulf the entire known creation. Truly a cosmic city with every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered and assembled at the throne singing holy, holy, holy to the Lamb who was slain. And thank you that Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this time of year, as a baby was born a king, the king of this city, and welcomes all who trust in him to be its citizens. I do pray also for Mercy Hill, this local expression, this little outpost of the kingdom of God. Father, we are a flawed and struggling church in many ways. We pray, Lord, that as we conclude this year and embark into the new year, that you would re renew our vision for extending Zion to the world. May we, even in 2023, have a renewed zeal for mission and evangelism. May we have a renewed love for the covenant mercies of God, his faithfulness. May our devotional life be taken up with meditating upon God's love for us and sharing that with others who are struggling in hopelessness. And finally, Lord, we pray that you would continue to help this pulpit and myself as a preacher speak on behalf of the great King and not just what I want to say or don't want to say and 
all together, Lord, brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray that you would be pleased with us and help us to become the people of your own possession. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.